Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nitha Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Christy Friedrichs. She's Chief Operating Officer at New Relic. She's also been Chief People Officer and was a longtime senior consultant at Bain. Christy shares her wisdom about why you should take on new challenges before you feel ready, the importance of connection, communication, and empathy in anything you're driving, how to navigate the tricky work of rethinking your business model to better meet customer and market needs, and what it takes to foster strong culture, leadership dynamics, and a successful founder to new CEO transition. Thanks for joining us. We're here today with Christy Friedrichs. She is the COO at New Relic. Welcome, Christy. We're so excited to have you. Thank you, Nita. It's so fun to be here. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast, and I'm happy to be featured on it. Well, thank you. Well, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about how you got to New Relic and a little bit about your journey and what was kind of surprising, because you've had this, such an interesting background. It's a it's an unusual resume, for sure, uh, an unusual journey. I think the common thread throughout, I guess, is number one, taking on new challenges before I felt ready for them. And in fact, you know, oftentimes that's paired with the most surprising element, which is that I was able to be successful based on, despite a, a sort of lack of expertise, traditional expertise in some of these areas. So taking on new opportunities and then using a lot of sort of first principles thinking to figure out how to be successful. Because when you don't have the benefit, for example, of growing up in an HR world, and then you suddenly find yourself as chief people officer of a tech company, you really have to figure out, you know, what's the most important thing here? How am I going to be uh, uniquely able to meet the challenge uh, of this role? And what expertise do I need to build around me, given that, you know, expertise is still valuable and I, I don't necessarily have it. But I guess um, just backing up a little, my um, my career was, I spent the first uh, 16 years of my career at Bain & Company Consulting. I was on the client-facing side for the first probably um, 14 or so years up through associate partner. And what I always gravitated towards in those situations, I really enjoyed the process of being brought in by a client who had a tough problem that needed help figuring it out. And that was always interesting. But what was always most interesting to me was how you actually get it done. So once you have the answer, the idea, okay, then how do you actually put it into practice? And for that, it's all about understanding an organization, understanding what makes it tick, how things get done, who needs to be bought in, who has the best ideas, all that kind of thing. And my last two years at Bain, I was in an operating role where I was running operations for the Bay Area business, um, a lot of sort of staffing, leadership development, performance management, um, a lot of capacity management and things like that, which translated reasonably well into my chief people officer role, but not perfectly because it wasn't, you know, I wasn't running a line HR function. Um, and a consulting company has a very different set of employee needs and challenges, set of recruiting targets than a software company. So I was chief people officer at New Relic for about four years. And then my last two years at New Relic, I was chief operating officer, which means a lot of different things. But at New Relic, uh, it was designed as a way to help run the company internally. So it was a very internal facing COO role. It was, you know, what's our operating rhythm? What data do we bring to bear? How do we make decisions? 
who is accountable for what and how do we, um, you know, maintain that rhythm and tracking to make sure that we're hitting our targets. One of the things I really love about your career is that you're always ready for a challenge. So I am curious to know what was maybe one of the bigger challenges you had to work through and uh, and how did you get there? I appreciate the confidence in me. I will say I don't always feel ready for the challenges, right? And I think that's part of the secret uh, that I think is getting explored more and more often these days is actually you look to leaders and you think, wow, they've got their act together. I could never do that. And meanwhile, the leaders are sitting there thinking, I do not have my act together. <laughs> what am I doing? Uh, and you just kind of manage through. But I, I guess, you know, all that aside, one of the things that felt almost insurmountable at the time it happened and and, and surprising was I was chief people officer when COVID hit. And we, you know, were fortunate in a lot of ways because we were a software company. We didn't have a, a manufacturing line. We didn't have people who needed to be in the office, but we did have security challenge. We had load balancing on our VPN. And we had a lot of mental health challenges with parents having small children at home and and things like that. And, you know, people who didn't have small children at home feeling like they just couldn't separate work from life and, and were working constantly. And so how did we shift our operations from largely in-person with the exception of our field sales teams, but even then in-person with customers to largely remote in a matter of, you know, days. And I think the way I approached that challenge was I think the way I approach a lot of challenges was just like, okay, what do we know? What do we know how to do? What are the biggest problems to tackle? What's going to get in the way? And then a lot of empathy and listening, right? Because I think, you know, our attorneys and HR teams and IT teams met, you know, in preparation for work from home and thought about like VPN load balancing and work from home remote setups and things like that. But we weren't prepared for things like, hey, my kids are out of school. Can you create an online school for my children? Um, we weren't prepared for things like I live in a house with four people I don't know that well, you know, I, and I can't leave my bedroom. I'm starting to get depressed. Like we weren't ready for all that stuff. And so you couldn't just come up with a plan, announce it, and then just assume everything's fine. You have to have a regular set of outbound communication and a regular set of sort of inbound listening and understanding challenges. And you also have to be pretty clear uh, on some decisions that that may not be popular, right? So the school example was like, I have a lot of empathy. I had small children at home too, but there's no way a private company can replace a public school system. And so you just have to sort of work around it and 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 figure out, you know, what are some accommodations we can make and what are other accommodations we just can't make as we work through it. Um, one thing I did, just as a small example, was I, I wrote an email at the end of that first week. You know, we we shifted to work from home on a Thursday and on Friday, I sent an email saying, hey, here's what you can expect. You know, here's how we're doing. And I shared a little personal anecdote about my kids. And then I did it again. You know, people said, hey, you know, the next week there's more stuff coming. There's more benefits. Can you do it again? So I did it the next Friday and then the next Friday. And then I actually did it for about six, seven months. Every Friday I would send an email just you know, sometimes it was like, hey, here's an announcement about some benefits. Sometimes it was a personal story. A lot of times it was stories from other employees that they had sent me. And years later, people were telling me that, that they looked forward to that email every Friday afternoon because it helped them feel connected to the company. And and at the time, I sort of knew people were reading it, but I, I didn't really. And it, it's sort of stuck with me as just an example of the importance of connection, communication, and empathy in anything you're driving. And you could sort of feel like a broken record or you're sort of throwing a lot of information out into the wind, but people appreciate that. Oh, and one more thing. One more thing is nobody knew what they were doing. 
and I built a community. I had fortunately built a community of of other HR leaders at at similar size SaaS companies, and we just you know liked each other. Uh, and in COVID, we started meeting daily, and then it went to twice a week, and then it went to weekly. But we got each other through it because because we were all experiencing the same thing. And I think for any leader, I would recommend trying to find that community because you can do a lot with your peers and your community at work. Uh, but there's a, a set of people who are going through similar things that you're going through that can be really valuable. I think there's some really excellent learnings there. And I absolutely think that during COVID to have that level of reassurance and connection had to be really powerful for your colleagues. I, I'm sure there's a lot of appreciation for that. And it it relates a little bit to one of the topics I also wanted to get into because you have so much expertise in organizational design and transformation and driving change in an organization is one of the hardest things that any of us have to do or, or live through in business. You have had a lot of success with this, both as a consultant and as an operator. So maybe tell us you know, what has been a success and why do you think it worked? Or is there some pattern recognition there because you've seen this multiple times? Like, are there some takeaways? It is never easy and nobody ever gets that good at it, I think, is the, is the reality. That's probably reassuring for a lot of people, actually, to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, my my biggest success was actually what I wanted to talk about is my biggest challenge, but I thought maybe you would ask a follow-up question. So, and it's the business model transformation we undertook in New Relic over the last three years. So New Relic historically had, it grew up as, for, for those of you who don't know, it's an application performance monitoring product, uh, innovated the market of cloud-based APM in 2007. Over the subsequent years through the IPO, kept adding adjacent businesses and products like logging and infrastructure monitoring and browser and mobile monitoring, and sold those as their own SKUs with different pricing meters. And, and you could buy those or not buy those depending on what you wanted. So we made two shifts in order to address some some challenges we were facing as well as where the market was heading in, I guess it was 2019, we made the decision to start this, this transformation. And the first thing we did is we replatformed the product. So we said, look, observability requires that you see everything across the suite. It does not make sense for you to shut down and say, I only want to look at the application. I don't want to see what's happening on the front end. Or I don't care about the logs that the application is throwing off because I only want to see what the APM is showing about the time it's taking to do certain things. And so for one price, you access the whole platform. So that was change number one. And that was a change in pricing meter, right? So you were used to paying per host, you were used to paying per GB for logs, and, and we changed it to a seat-based model with additional uh, sort of cost plus pricing for the data that you ingested. And so that required a, a big overhaul of all our contracts. The second thing we did was we switched to a consumption-based pricing model. So we moved to where Historically, we had been a, a subscription business where you make a commitment, you pay for the commitment, you have a certain amount of capacity. If you go over, we have to go to for a true up or renegotiate a payment and things like that. It's not automatic. And uh, and it led to a, a bunch of sort of adverse behavior as well as a whole bunch of, of unpaid usage. So we shifted to a, a consumption-based model, which required, it, it didn't really matter what you committed to. Um, there were some benefits to making bigger commitments, but we charged based on what you actually used. And we were public at the time. It was trying to do sort of a triple backflip, but, you know, like the most complicated gymnastics move ever done, you know, and none of us knew how to do it or how successful it was going to be. And I think the reason, you know, it was tricky. We had some learnings. I wouldn't say it was like totally smooth sailing, but I think that the couple things that I learned from that are basically first principles thinking applies to every change, right? 
what are uh, the key metrics we're trying to drive, who owns them, what do they need to do differently in order to drive these metrics versus the other metrics, how can you track and get to leading indicators to making sure you know it's you know working even if there's some lagging indicators like revenue that'll come out you know later, and then getting those behaviors clear because it takes the whole team getting on board and just grinding it out, right? I talked about deals, like we had 15,000 paying customers, every single one of them had to shift from the old model to the new model. And some of that was done automatically. Most of it was done with sales teams and the deals desk working through and grinding out every single deal, coming up with customer specific issues and adjustments and transition planning and things like that. So if you get the key metrics wrong, if you get the behaviors wrong, if you don't think through some of these longer term things, it's going to get lost uh, once you go down to that deal level and that actual customer level. What I really hear in that too is that you, it sounds like you struck the balance between the short and long term in that. And I'm also hearing something mm-hmm. that I don't often hear in change management, which is it's not just internal, but it's change for your customers too. And so being mindful of that end to end is like how you actually get there. I mean, what are some of the misconceptions maybe around transformation? And this maybe refers more back to your work at Bain because you did have that wider perspective on this. The um, it, And it's interesting. Yes, I did. And yes, I made all the mistakes that you all always make uh, in transformations. It's so much harder as an operator to to get everything right, even if you know intellectually what the right thing is to do. And I think the number one thing is you always, always, always miss out on communication. I think it's either hubris because you understand it. So of course your employees, of course your customers should understand it. Of course it's obvious why this is the best thing. And I'll explain like on the customer side, just as an example, shifting to a consumption model, well, shifting to platform-based pricing. Some customers said, I only want APM. You're trying to gouge me on the pricing by selling me all this stuff I don't need. And then you kind of get down to it and you're talking to customers and you're sharing like, look, you're flying blind on half your environment, right? And here's all the downside of flying blind. And here's what your developers are saying about flying flying blind, number one. Number two, here's why the cost is actually not higher, right? And and here's how we've baked it in to make sure we're not like, you know, tripling your bill for the same thing. We're actually creating more value for the same price, right? But that takes every single time, every single conversation. And guess what? The execs can't have that conversation with 15,000 customers. So it starts with your employees really understanding and buying into the change and why you're doing it. And cynical employees will say, oh, it's because New Relic wants to charge more for the same thing. It's because we're trying to sneak in a price increase, not because this is the way the market is heading. This is the way the shift has been away from these siloed products to the platform-based programs. And if employees don't buy in, customers are definitely not going to buy in. So anyway, so I mentioned I mentioned Hubert. You understand it. It seems so simple. Why can't they understand it? There's also a little bit of um, humility, which is, I don't want to hear myself talk. I've said this thing before. I'm boring. I don't want to repeat myself, right? And so you feel like a broken record. And I guess every time I would have a conversation where I'd mention something that I felt was straightforward that we had talked about six months prior and an employee would ask a question about it, I'd realize like, you know, when you're actually like day to day kind of writing the code or structuring the deal or closing the books, you're not thinking about this stuff all the time. And it's so important to just maintain those couple messages, the clarity and consistency and just keep saying them. 
Yeah, that relentless focus, certainly. How long did it take for New Relic to really move through this change? Because it is a lot. I mean, you're really talking about this on so many different levels, and I can also appreciate that they're all required. So how, how do you think about that? The way we measured the transition was basically when did we launch it to when was our sort of last customer brought on board? We had gotten through probably 80% of it in the first 12 months. Um, so we had transitioned most of our customers, but there was the long tail of multi-year deals and oftentimes they were our largest customers. So it actually wasn't all, all done for about two years. And there's still, I mean, there's still legacy stuff to work through, but after two years, we were pretty well through the bulk of the transition. One of the big things that you did, which is a really seminal moment in any company that was founder-led, you know, in recent memory particularly, is moving from a founder to what some might call a professional CEO. And there can be a lot of um, emotion and also opportunity. So you, I think for employees, I think there are, um, there's some exciting moments in there, but maybe some angst too. So what were your takeaways from your experience with this at New Relic? Uh, great question. I think number one, you always need to be planning for that, right? Even if you have a CEO who is just successful at every turn and wants to stay for years and years, you always need a succession plan, right? And I think if you find you don't have a viable successor, you've got to start hiring for it, even if you're not ready. And in fact, always, you know, in advance of when you're ready for it, because you never know what the future holds. And and the absolute worst case scenario is you train an amazing executive and they go on to be a CEO somewhere else, right? Like that, that's actually a great outcome. I think we were fortunate in New Relic in that we didn't have a lot of ego in the C-suite. And so the the ability to sort of hire successors, develop successors um, was something we could be super open about and we didn't have to, you know, worry about politics and, and things like that, that I think sometimes creep in when you're talking about potential successors, either with folks vying for that, you know, new role or with the CEO who who doesn't want to think about about moving on. So so plan in advance, always have a succession plan, even, you know, when uh, uh, Bill Staples took over for Lucerne as CEO, we needed to go with a succession plan for Bill to the board, right? Like, it, and it was sort of like, well, we don't have a well-developed one because we just <laughs> just did it. Um, but that's the right time to start thinking about it as always. So I think there there's that. And then there's just the reality of uh, an internal successor is always easier, but to do your fiduciary duty, you have to do an internal and external search. And I think what you want to make sure is that you're super clear on what you need in your next CEO, because what you need is different from what you have now, right? You're going to be in a different stage with different requirements. And the more you can set up those tests at the company level for your internal successors, the better. So giving opportunity, for example, for PL responsibility for a functional leader or for forays into different functions for someone who may not be as uh, adept on the go-to-market side, for example, or adept on the product or R&D side, you really want to make sure you're testing that individual's ability to understand across different function areas. And then the third is just making sure the rest of the team is locked in, in place, bought in, because, you know, for example, New Relic's a deeply technical company. It was really important that our successor CEO had a technical background. You don't often find someone with a technical background who also has deep financial and operational um, experience. So staffing around that by having retention plans in place, for example, for the CFO, 
I moved into the COO role to help with sort of cross-functional alignment and internal operations. Having done a lot of that as chief people officer, um, it was sort of a natural move. And so it's building that team around the new CEO to make sure that you're sort of setting them up for success. So whether it is the new CEO or, I mean, I think this applies to the existing as well or to business unit leaders, how do you think that execs can better partner with human resources? Because I think whether we call it people ops or human resources, there's a lot of baggage, I think, associated with that function. And I think even among very senior executives, people have very different understandings of it, in my view, and that probably applies to different companies. So I'll, I'll start there. How do you think people can more effectively partner? It is a great question. It's a sort of an ongoing challenge. And I think the onus is on both the, and we could call it HR, that's fine, the HR teams as well as the functional and, um, and product-led teams. So it's not just on one side or the other. I think a really well-run HR function actually partners super closely with finance, by the way. So I'd say HR yeah. and finance as a as a unit can help you make better decisions. So if you think about when you're scaling, right, it's a temptation to just be like, for example, every account executive equals 1 million in net new bookings. We have a $20 million target. We need 20 new account executives without thinking about, okay, what are the right uh, management ratios and layers we need in place? What are the right kinds of profiles we're looking for to make sure those individuals can be successful? Do we have the right onboarding and training plan in place? Um, are we paying the right amount for each person? Right. And so if I think that's why I say HR and finance together, because it's especially at software companies, it's the biggest expense and people don't often think about it. At least they didn't used to. I think they are getting there more and more, but it's a big shift in terms of an expense and an investment. Right. And so how do you partner with HR? You make sure that you have job roles and expectations that are clear. It's not you're not hiring an account executive. You are you are hiring for a million dollars in new sales. Right. You're not hiring um, a finance person. You're hiring someone to create a new planning process. And so you want to think about the outcomes. Um, you want to think about an org structure that makes sense and is cost effective and efficient, right? Um, I would say, uh, you know, I've seen organizations that hire well ahead of growth in the leadership. So you end up with spans of control that are really narrow in sales functions, for example, where it's like a VP would have three direct reports or something like that. And and it's just maybe if you continue on that hiring trajectory and maybe you want to hire out in advance of that, but you have to be clear and then you have to be accountable against it and continue to build it out. So that that's on scaling, right? And I think scaling is hard because you just, you're desperate to make hires because when you're scaling and growing, everyone's hair's on fire and you just need help. And so you're just extending offers and doing what you can to close them. And you don't ever step back and say, okay, like now how does this look for internal equity or how does this look for our overall structure and efficiency? And I think you need to do that on a more frequent basis when you're scaling than, than feels natural. What about when you're talking about driving change? Like what's the difference there, do you think? I think the biggest difference there is they're harder decisions, right? Because when you're driving change, you may need the same number of people. You need, be, you need them to be doing different stuff right? So you need to be super clear on what those expectations are. HR can't do it on their own, but the teams can't do it on their own either, right? They need to partner together and HR can bring that expertise in terms of asking the right questions and bringing the right structure to say, this is what you actually need from this role now, as opposed to what you needed in the old model. And then I also think 
some managers are really quick to say, well, we need all new people. And some managers are really quick to say, well, we need no new people. We just need to retrain. And the reality is you need the right people engaged in the right stuff. And and some of them will be existing people. If you think about like, you either need someone who knows your business inside and out, but needs to come up with new habits or someone who brings those habits, but needs to learn your business, right? So either way, you're learning something. And I found in general, a blend of new folks and existing folks who are bought into the change is the right model. But if you're a manager and you've got your team, or if you're a functional leader and you've only got your function, you don't have that breadth of vision to understand you know, what is the right mix. And I think HR can really partner effectively with you to help. I think that makes sense. And going back to something that that you um that you brought in that I think is is really important in this, and that is finance, which mm-hmm. makes me want to ask you about annual planning too, because the real output of that is like when we bring people in, we want some kind of result for the business. And I think that's also where, especially in tech, I think things get very messy because sometimes we're extremely aspirational uh, without thinking through whether it's org change or the business model. So I know that's a big question <laughs> to maybe spring on you, but how how um, it feels like annual planning really should go in this conversation, even with HR, and it probably doesn't in most works. Yeah, I know. Ideally, HR and finance are in lockstep throughout the okay. planning process. And I actually hesitate to call it annual planning because it should happen more frequently than annually. That's fair. That's you fair. You need a long-term plan. Uh, so you don't want to sort of revert. And ideally, you know, I think the gold standard is you've got a three-year strategy Year three is like aspirational. You've got a rolling 18-month plan. And then you've got your annual plan. Of course, if you're a public company, you have to have forecasts and quarterly reports and things like that. But I found that a quarterly set of goals, objectives is a super uh, useful way to stay agile. To say, look, yes, we have annual commitments. Yes, we have annual quotas and targets and things like that. We have what's what we've promise to the street, what we promise to the board and what we actually think we can do. All of those things are on an annual basis, but you really have got to check in quarterly and say, what are the things that we're going to commit to this quarter and get done? And it could be that we're going to do one quarter's worth of work on an 18-month project, or it could be that we are, you know, actually launching the thing that we said we would launch, you know, six months ago, right? So there's, there's a lot of different things. And I think leading that with finance and HR in terms of who's accountable for what, uh, do you have the right resources to get the thing done that you said you would get done? And is the thing driving the outcomes that you said it was going to drive is really important. But it also takes the entire C-suite of folks to be aligned across and understand, hey, if I'm a sales leader and I'm committing to a certain thing, I hope my product and R&D leaders are committing to delivering the thing that I'm going to rely on to get that number done. Uh, and HR and finance can be brokers of that, but ultimately it's got to be an alignment across the full C-suite. That leads me into leadership dynamics, because that is such a huge issue in every company of any size. And it's another one where I think we talk about it. I'm not personally convinced we always give it the attention it deserves. Sometimes, if not in most organizations, there's you know one person with outsized influence. There might be a, a small clique of folks that really move the org. From your perspective, what does it take to maintain healthy dynamics or to foster them? If you're coming out of a situation where maybe uh, maybe things weren't working well and you have the ambition to make them better, how do you think about that from people ops and then also you know from a COO or even a CEO perspective? What do you think people should think about? Well, it starts with the CEO, right? Because politics and that sort of click of influence, you can either nurture that 
hopefully accidentally, hopefully you're not doing it on purpose, but you could, you could signal that that is how, you know, you make decisions or you can lock it down. And I think a CEO bringing their team together, making sure there's no sort of favoritism, there's no, this person speaks and I pay more attention than that person. It's a lot of those softer interpersonal um, dynamics. I think the chief people officer can play a really important role in pointing that out and holding the CEO accountable because they are not, you know, they don't have a horse in the race of who gets funded marketing or sales or who, you know, which product gets more engineering resources, right? And so they can just provide that sort of clarity and transparency. So I think the CEO really listening, engaging, and being open to their full team is really important. Transparency is another one. And I think that's one that um, organizations, especially when you get to a certain scale and especially when you're remote, can underestimate the importance of that. You've really got to be clear when decisions get made at the leadership level that there's buy-in and alignment. At New Relic, we use the the DACI model for decision-making. It's like who needs to be consulted, who approves the decision, who needs to be informed, right? And documenting it. And then making sure, even if you sort of disagree, that you understand the rationale and you're committed to the decision, right? It's that, that, and when that doesn't work, we had a shorthand of saying, hey, are we agreeing and undermining, right? If you hear about a decision and you're annoyed by it in the moment and you go along to get along, but then you don't actually do what's required to help implement it or you don't push it with your people and things like that. Uh, and that's super toxic as well. And I think adhering to the decision best practices, adhering to that transparency and communication is an important way of, of rooting that out. And all of this trickles into or is a um, fire hose potentially for culture. How do you define culture? It's the set of unwritten rules. It's the connective tissue. It's how decisions are made, how you treat each other, how you treat your customers, how you communicate, the sort of norms of how you act and behave. And, you know, a lot of companies try to write that down. So it's unwritten rules. They try to write it in terms of a a mission and vision, in terms of operating principles or values. And I think that's a super important thing to do. Uh, but you have to do it with integrity, right? So if it ends up just being words on a wall, if it ends up, worst case, you write down something that is not true, but it's aspirational and you don't actually behave in that way, then it really undermines the whole exercise of writing down your operating principles. And uh, and so that that's one thing leaders can do is just be honest about what the culture is and what they care about and, and sort of write it down. But uh, but that's that's what it is. And I think, you know, you step into an organization and you can read about the culture, you can hear about the culture, but until you're living it, you don't really know what it is. I think what I hear you saying there, too, is that it's very much a say, do gap. And I my sense is that oftentimes it's what we don't write down and what people experience that's the real marker of culture. But again, I'm not sure mm-hmm. that organizations necessarily think about it that way. Do you think repairing a culture is possible if things haven't gone well or there have been historic challenges or even, you know, something unexpected and traumatic like going through COVID? Absolutely. Uh, I definitely do. I think changing a culture takes a lot of work, but is possible. And it takes commitment, dedication and consistency from from the top down. Like you cannot slip up for a second. If you say we're going to be a culture of accountability, we're going to be a culture where metrics matter and we hold people to metrics then in every single situation, the CEO has to hold their direct reports. Their direct reports have to hold their direct reports and each other accountable 
uh, in visible ways in small and large, right? And so, so it's possible. I think you asked about repairing though, and I think that's a lot harder if there has been trust broken. Cause you know, it's like the, the old saying, like trust takes a long time to build and can destroy it uh, with the stroke of a pen. Um, and I think repairing, you know, repairing or changing anything just around culture requires a lot of trust. And I think there are ways of rebuilding trust, right? If And it depends kind of what's happened to cause that breach. Um, I think a lot of companies right now are going through layoffs and restructurings. And I think that is a huge breach of trust with employees who feel now unsafe or insecure in their positions. And I think papering over it, assuming everyone feels fine, you know, three weeks after the announcement, all of those things are ways of just continuing to damage that trust. And then there's ways of rebuilding it, right? There's ways of getting through it stronger, but you have to be open. You have to acknowledge, you know, the impact that it's had. You have to ask folks for their opinion, answer questions that might be uncomfortable, you know, all that kind of thing. When it comes to something deeper than that, when you think about like, CEO malfeasance or, you know, sexual harassment, like all of those things are are very big breaches of trust. And they they just require bigger, bolder moves of accountability in order to move past them. Otherwise, I think there there's just permanent breaches of trust. Is there anything else that you think organizations can do to build trust or or to foster it so that you're not in a place where you're having to go through this like deeper repair? It's a great question. I personally believe in and always have that one of the most underappreciated business skills is empathy. You know, a lot of people talk about hard skills like, you know, horsepower and and decision making and and communication and those are all really important, but I think leading with empathy is the only way to build trust. Like I need to show that not only do I care about what you're going through, I understand it, right? And you know, you hear about like people saying I don't feel heard. That used to frustrate me because like feeling heard doesn't necessarily mean that whatever you're saying, we subscribe to and what we as sort of the leadership team of the company subscribe to are, are going to do. But it does mean you have to say, hey, I, I understand that you feel this way. I've heard what you've said. I acknowledge your question, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think having a strong culture requires empathy. Now, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean no tough decisions, no performance management, no accountability. And in fact, it's the opposite. Like empathy for a team requires, you know, that you're committed to high performance of that team, right? And it could mean that that, that you have to part ways with an employee who's not making the grade and that needs to be okay, but it has to all be done with demonstration that you are a human and you um, understand what the other humans in your organization are going through. Where do boards come into play? Like, how can a good board potentially do more to improve culture or to foster a strong culture? You know, it's a good question because I actually think culture is pretty operational and boards, as a rule, should stay out of operations, right? Sure. And um, and so they do have to stay a little bit at arm's length because their job is to hold the CEO and their team accountable. Their job is to, you know, be accountable to shareholders for performance, right? Having said that, the board and and as when I was chief people officer, it's probably actually in bo in both my roles, I I interacted quite heavily with the board. As chief people officer, I was running the compensation committee, and so as part of the comp committee, we'd always talk about employee survey, turnover, employee satisfaction, and culture as a as underpinning all of that. We also would talk about leadership team performance and leadership dynamics, and so 
asking the questions around, you know, how the CEO is performing, how their team is performing, what are the challenges with the culture, how's the team reacting to the business model transformation or the recent set of restructuring or or things like that. You can ask those kinds of questions, much like you'd ask a strategic question. The the only challenge is, you know, you have to you have to maintain that distance of saying I'm a I'm a governing body. I'm not an operating body. So do you think boards could do more? There are a lot of metrics that you can look at that are appropriate for a board to ask about. Employee turnover, diversity metrics and statistics, hiring statistics, employee survey results. You can look on Glassdoor any day and kind of see what the overall pulse is on the company. And I think there's often warning signs in those metrics that you just need to keep asking two and three more questions of. I guess that's one. Another one is a little more nuanced, but in your quarterly board meetings and in your annual strategic offsites, you observe how the management team interacts with each other. You observe who's talking, who's being listened to and heard. You know, you're at the board dinners and you see who's like interacting with who, and you can kind of you can kind of get a sense, right? And that's when you sort of go to the CEO with feedback or ask the tougher questions like, hey, I noticed that all the women on your team all sit off to the side and aren't part of the discussion. Why is that? Hey, I noticed when this person made a comment um, and then another person followed it up with the same comment, everyone listened to that second person. Why do you think that is, right? And just starting to to plant those seeds. But I think um, unless and until it becomes a business impacting issue, that's the best you can do is offer your guidance. It's almost like a strategy discussion, right? Offer your guidance, your observations, your perspectives in coaching the CEO. You do need to be aware and accountable to when it becomes, when it crosses a bridge to toxic. So as an example, there's typically like employee hotlines where you can report things that go directly to the chair of the audit committee, right? You got to pay attention to those. Right. right. And my my guess is they're in a lot of the companies you read about, they had those, they either were underutilized by employees, employees didn't know about them, or they like got swept under the rug where it's like, oh yeah, this person, wow, there've been 12 complaints about like, you know, toxic work environments, but I'm sure it's just like 12, those 12 people and nobody else, right? Like, and so the impetus when something has been reported is is much higher to pay attention to that. A lot of companies are in serious pain right now. Obviously, it's uh, it's feeling like it's still either this non-recession or it's taken us longer to come out of COVID than any of us had hoped for. From your perspective, what do you think companies can do that maybe they haven't necessarily considered, whether it's driving change or some of the hard work, again, that you've experienced of trying to fix or rethink a business model? Because it seems to me like there are some common themes that might be preventing some organizations from getting where they want to go, which, you know, again, is a challenge for all of us as individuals and organizations. What do you think? It's hard to make a a generic statement because it's different for every company. But I think in general, much like where we started the conversation around my career, nothing beats going back to basics and thinking about what are your customers' pain points and which of those pain points do you solve better than anyone else and why, right? And then you think, what value are you creating by relieving those pain points? And how do you capture that value most efficiently without gouging your customer or leaving value on the table, right? And then the harder thing is, what are some of the things you're doing that are getting in the way of driving that value, right? What are the pet projects that are not turning out well? What are the complicated set of management priorities that can't all be executed at the same time, right? 
And so how do you, once you've gone back to basics and you've like articulated clearly what the value is that you're looking to bring, then you really have to look closely at all the things you're doing that are not necessarily driving that value. And then what's preventing companies from doing that? Well, I, partly because it's hard, right? It's hard to think about what you're doing that's differentiated and why. You know, there's a lot of navel gazing around, well, ours is the absolute best X, Y, Z. And yet there's another competitor out there who's outselling you. Why is that? Just really understanding that deeply. There's also sort of short and long-term, right? Like there's hanging on to things with potentially questionable future payoff because you believe in them. And so they're just tough calls that you can either delay or, or otherwise sort of sweep under the rug because you don't have to make that hard choice now. So you just kind of let everything fester and keep going. And then I think you, what's unique about this current time is that everyone woke up four or six quarters ago and said, oh, profitability actually matters. And you can no longer just keep throwing money at a problem. But companies, especially companies that have grown up during the heyday of the last 10 years of just unlimited expansion, 15 years of unlimited expansion, didn't know how to do that, right? And so there's easy, like it's never easy to cut costs, but there's quote unquote easy ways, 10% across the board cuts or hey, like, let's not cut marketing headcount. Let's just cut all the program spend because it's not people, right? And you can do that in a way that's basically like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Because you're not being strategic or thoughtful about what is the actual structure you need to go attack your core business and the things that are adding value to your customers. And you end up spreading the pain. And then even more toxically, like not stopping anything but reducing investment by a little bit across the board. So it's just a little bit harder. Already it was hard to do all the priorities um, that you're trying to achieve and then you're making it a little bit harder as opposed to relieving some of the pressure by making the tough choices. Would you say then that it's better to take the strategic swing, figure out the business model? Like you're obviously saying, ask the hard questions, do the tough work. Is that how you would think about it? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I, I wouldn't say... We at New Relic or, or even at Bain, when I look about Bain's business or, or what we, it's always easier to advise than do, I would say, at stopping things. Stopping things is hard, especially because nothing ever gets put on a list to do that's a bad idea. You just have to use good decision-making hygiene, alignment around a strategy to make those calls. And I think understanding what is putting sand in the gears and making things hard and, and pulling that as quickly as possible is super important. And, and I guess it just, it's different every time, right? It could be a set of IT systems. So one example, and you're like, that was very personal to me is that when we moved to the consumption model and the platform pricing, we didn't have the data systems in place to let product managers know exactly what dollars were being spent on their product. They could see how much usage was happening in their product, but in a big free tier. And it was unclear, you know, where the dollars were coming from, what our big customers were using. And so we invested behind a new data team to sort of create a new um, data warehouse and centralized data model to, to be able to make those decisions. And that was a huge investment that was, you know, it was much harder than we realized and things like that. But that's the type of thing that you have to invest behind. You can't do it halfway because otherwise you can't you know, optimize the outcomes, right? But then there's other things that maybe sound great, like new, you know, new IT systems or things like that, that really it can be very frustrating to not have, 
but you can hack together without and you can't distract your IT team who's working on the data stuff with a whole big new project to, to make a business process easier to do, for example. So that's a, that's the type of example of like, hey, there's like a list of 12 things. We really have to get them all done, but you can only do three. And you have to be really sort of ruthless about how you prioritize that as a leader. Prioritization is hard for everyone. I know I struggle with it too. I like to mm-hmm. do all the things, it's, I mean, which I think is a common challenge. It's You can think about it as like, it seems like in the list of 12 things, there should be eight bad ideas, just do the four good ones. But no, it's 12 good ideas. And it's 12 right. good ideas often who have one person behind it who's really championing it and really, really wants it. And they're really likable, great employee. And you want to say yes, but it's it's just, you can't. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation. I think there's a lot of insight that you've shared with us. I have two closing questions for you. One is, what do you think high performance companies do differently from the rest of the pack? And the related question is, what can others learn from them? Which is not actually the second question. You're getting another second question. Uh, I mean, it's it may sound trite, but it's harder to do than in reality. High performing companies have a high culture of accountability and performance orientation. They're super clear. And it doesn't mean like you can have poorly run companies that are full of top performers, right? I don't want to name any, but uh, I can think of some off the top of my head that just hire absolute stars, but don't have clarity around what those stars are supposed to do, what matters to the company and how the customers are getting value. And so they kind of languish a little bit as opposed to here's our five-year strategy. Here's our one-year version of that here's what we have to get done this quarter and here's what your job is and how I'm going to hold you accountable and then actually hold you accountable, right? Hey, it looks like you missed that metric. Explain it, right? And so I think that is super important. It's also, you can do it in a really negative way. Like think about GE in the 80s, right? Like bottom 10% of people get fired every single year. And then, you know, eventually you're just rehiring some of those bottom 10 back because they were actually quite good. Um, so there's way, and then and everyone's running scared. And also it creates some toxic incentives around, I've got to make myself look good, which I can either do by performing super well or by making another person look bad, right? Right. And so what you want to do is have a culture where it's clear what the outcomes need to be and you're supporting each other and everyone wants everyone to be successful. And so when it's clear and when there's the right investment behind things and everyone is in it for the company as opposed to in it for their own metrics or their own functions exclusively, that is the sort of virtuous flywheel that keeps performance um, moving ever upward. And then the other thing I'd say is when you have people who aren't meeting the grade, teams that aren't meeting the grade, products that aren't you know good fits, you've got to make that decision early and, and quickly uh, and with empathy and caring and kindness, right? Because if I think about like every organization I've been a part of or seen, like there are people who underperform, who get terminated, uh, and who part ways with a company who go on to be extremely successful, right? Like it's not like uh, an indictment on the individual at all, but it is an indictment on on that position, that role in that time. And it's unkind and unfair to the people who are high performing uh, to keep folks or teams or, you know, products on board that are not performing. So making those decisions quickly. Last question. What's your top advice for CEOs and senior executives right now? Uh, number one is practice empathy. Understand what your customers are feeling, what your employees are feeling. Communicate that empathy and show that you understand and that you care. And then as a tactical way to do that, 
practice good decision-making hygiene, right? Who should be making this decision? Who should be informed? What data needs to be brought to bear to make the decision? Um, and communicate really clearly and over-communicate always. I think that's an incredible list. Thank you so much, Christy. This was awesome. Thank you, Nita. Really love your podcast and appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. We're a new podcast, so it really helps listeners find us. If you'd like more information on today's episode, check out the show notes or send us a message. 